seems to me the larger a respective congregation of the Lord's people, the more people deserving of thanks there are. And we have so many unsung heroes, those that take care of the facilities and those that work behind the scenes. And sometimes we can, if we're not careful, take those unsung heroes for granted and not consider the value that they bring to our worship services like this. And there's so many different moving parts to make things work and to make sure that the facilities are open and secure and comfortable. But I'm particularly mindful of those that lead songs on a regular basis and how they reach out so often, just because you don't often they reach out to David or to myself to ask, hey, what are you preaching about? Or what text are you using? What ideas are you going to try to address? And I appreciate so very much the good songs that we have been able to sing tonight. Most of them were written uh, maybe 100 to 150 years ago, and some of them have some older languages. We don't talk about chords being broken and then mended back together too much in 2023, but that's a beautiful picture of what we're talking about tonight when we think about exactly what our brother Josh talked about just a moment or so ago, this idea of restoration and what it means to restore someone back to the faith. So I invite you to open back to Galatians chapter 6, where we're going to really just focus in on one of the handful of verses that our good brother read for us just a couple of moments ago. We have visitors with us tonight, and for that, we're grateful if that's you. We're grateful for our members as well for the opportunity opportunity to be together and to study. There are lots of things that you could be doing on a Sunday evening. Uh, This is one of those Sunday evenings where there are other things you could be doing or watching or uh, investing your time in, and we're glad that you've chosen to be here and that you've chosen to be with us as brothers and sisters who care about spiritual things because uh, I came across a little quote from a preacher friend of mine in a different state who said, I've got the best seat in the house tonight, and that's going to be in a pew listening to a sermon, uh, or at least delivering a sermon in his case. Uh, Sometimes being in the pew is better than being in the pulpit. Sometimes you learn a little bit more. But Sometimes we learn a lot in the way that we preach and in the things that we present. And this is a sermon that really in some ways dovetails with some of the things that David has talked about over the last couple of weeks, this idea of having a spirit of impartiality and being concerned about others and rescuing the perishing by using this simple statement by the Apostle Paul at the outset of the last chapter in the book of Galatians. I want to read that verse one time, and then we're going to come back and explore it as a thread throughout our study together tonight. It is interesting that in those five verses that our brother read for us, that the idea of focusing on others while also taking care of ourselves is really this dual mission of what we do as Christians, in that we first of all put the the, the mask on our own face like the flight attendants tell us to do to secure ourselves before we then take care of the infant passenger to our left or right or someone that may need more help. But we also have that second responsibility to aid others. And that's what it seems to me that we're talking about tonight. He says, brothers or brethren, which is a oft used term by the Apostle Paul and by Peter and other writers to signify that we have a special relationship. In many ways, it's almost like an attention getter. 
where he says, I want you to really listen in here as I close out this letter to you, the various Christians scattered around Galatia. He says, brothers and sisters, if a man or a woman, this is not just a a masculine term, this is a mankind. If a man is overtaken or caught in any trespass, that tells us it's not just a matter of one or two types of trespasses. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness or kindness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. I remember years ago in the olden days when we used paper and pencil and print and you received bulletins in the mail. Some of you still receive bulletins in the mail from other congregations, but these days it's mostly electronic or put on their websites. But you would get bulletins from various churches that you subscribe to where they would send you their updates. And I remember so often seeing where it was said that so-and-so was baptized and we're, of course, rejoicing over that. But then we also, oftentimes churches would use a statement saying, Brother Smith was restored tonight. That Brother Smith chose to restore himself and be restored to the church and restored to the Lord. And so that's a phrase that we're using tonight to consider the idea that when a person leaves the faith and a person is no longer faithful to the Lord, he or she needs to be restored back to his or her proper position within the church, both locally and in a universal sense. So, Given that all of us sin, which is one of the key messages over the last 12 weeks in Romans or 13 weeks now in Romans, one of the key points that Paul seems to drive home throughout those first 8 to 11 chapters of Romans is that we are sinful people. And given the fact that we all sin or will sin, restoration is mandatory. And remember that the New Testament is largely directed towards Christians. And I put that in parentheses on the screen because we need to be reminded that when Paul's writing or Peter or James, he's writing to brothers and sisters, not to people who are outside in the world. Not that the applications can't be made for those who are outside in the world, but that this is a message for those of us who are Christians, telling us that just because we are saved doesn't mean that we are saved forever. Our friends, maybe in neighbors and co-workers who are members of denominations would suggest that there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation And one of the points that I would make, in addition to looking at some of the major passages that we often look at, is that the New Testament, the letters, which is the vast majority of the the Bible, are written to Christians, telling them to remain faithful, given the fact that we will sometimes need such restoration. Restorations of saints is often associated with responses to the invitation of Jesus Christ, whether it be a formal invitation such like we offer on occasions when we come together on the Lord's Day or Wednesday evenings or perhaps when we have gospel meetings or anytime we come together, we often will say, if you want to become a Christian, if you want to be restored back to faithful service, this is an opportune time for us to do 
do so. Incidentally, this isn't the only time that a person can make such restoration and have such a response. There are individuals who've been baptized at three in the morning. There are individuals who've called out their local shepherds on a Tuesday evening saying, hey, I, I need some help. I've made some mistakes. Would you please pray for me? I want to be restored. And so there's never a wrong time to seek restoration except for the caveat that waiting till later is the wrong time to seek said restoration. Those who were out of duty is oftentimes a phrase that we use to refer to those who need to be restored. And by definition, to return or to restore is the idea of putting something back to wholeness or to its proper place. Some of you uh, have this great ability to restore old cars and to make them look new again. Or some of you may be able to take a, a house or a portion of a house that is in disrepair and you are able to make it whole again. And we pay money for people to do that to the, to the items or the possessions that we enjoy and that God has benefited us from. Which brings us back to the verse here in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 where he says, if you are overtaken he says, you who are spiritual are to restore that person and to do so with an appropriate, responsible, loving, kind, and gentle attitude. And we could go and explore the other four verses of the paragraph, but I want us to just make five simple observations about this verse one at the outset. And one we've already made, and that we've been making now, as I said, for the last three to four months in our study of Romans, and that is all people are subject to this particular subject. All people need what this passage is talking about, and that all of us sin. Note, if you would, the significance of the phrase a man here in verse 1. This was the point behind Paul's famous statement in the verse that so many of us can quote in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And I think it's a good verse to memorize where he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The only exception to that all is, of course, Christ himself. When he went to the cross, he went bearing our sins, while, as Brother Brian or someone else recently talked about, those next to him in our Lord's Supper talk this morning and talking about what Jesus was doing and being that sin-bearing servant in Isaiah 53, he was bearing the sins of men and women. Now, Jesus is that exception, as outlined in a number of passages, including 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Let me ask this question, and let me give two very simple answers, and that is, why is there a need to stress that all sin? Why is that part of Romans chapter 3? Why is that here in Galatians chapter 6? Why is that virtually in every passage in the New Testament telling us that we all are sinners? One is, it seems to me, it's attempting to highlight the the superiority of Jesus Christ himself. Again, going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that Jesus is the perfect one. He's void of sin. He's void of anything that is wrong, of any blemish whatsoever. He is that perfect sacrifice that God provides. 
But let me also suggest to you that there's a second reason that we need to appreciate, and that is it's to serve as a warning against haughtiness. Turn over, if you would, very quickly to the book of James. And we spent some time in James chapter 2 this morning. I want to go to the fourth chapter. And in verse 6, it says, He gives more grace, speaking of our God, of our Creator. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And there's so many different lessons we can learn from just that one verse. But one of those is that if a person were to say, look how good I am, look how perfect I act, look how righteous I have become. Not only is he becoming pharisaical, not only is he becoming like the very persons that God has said, do not be like, he is calling out himself to be one of the great of, of, of foolish statements that could ever be made. And I think we all understand that. But we've got to understand in a world filled with people that we are trying to restore, we've got to be cautious, as Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 is telling us, to not see ourselves as being so much greater than someone else. Nothing wrong with saying, you know what, we need to talk about the sin in your life. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the course of our study together tonight. But there has to be caution exercised with how we go about that. Making statements like, you know what, I've struggled with this as well. Or you have your struggles, I have my struggle. We are in this thing together. May very well be a valuable tool in the toolbox in trying to engage someone in understanding what their sin is. Not only is it true that all people sin, but a second observation is to appreciate that there is power in sin. And we live in a world where we scoff at sin. And when I say we, I'm talking about humans and particularly those of us in Western civilization where we laugh at the idea of sin, where we hear God's name taken in vain and we don't think anything about it, where we see something on TV that is inappropriate and we laugh at it, where we see people who are cut down and rather than saying that's not right, we join in with the circus. Paul's use of the word overtaken is not by accident. The New King James uses the word overtaken. I believe the ESV and some of the New American Standard uses the word caught. And a person can be overtaken or get caught up in something that is wrong. And it happens quicker than we can imagine. Satan is not concerned with what I would call temporary victory or simply getting us to entertain the notion of sin. And so let me provide this warning, and it is in red, the color of warning and flashing at you, that doing so is considered limited success by Satan. However, the point that I'm making is this. Satan does not have to get us to quit coming to church, so to speak, or to quit reading our Bibles, or to quit believing in God. He doesn't have to have that final, complete, ultimate victory. But rather, if he gets us to come to church and only to do it to check the box, if he gets us to read our Bibles, but only maybe once a month, if he gets us to talk spiritually maybe a couple of dozen times a year, he has succeeded. And that's a frightening thing. Satan says, I don't need 100% of you. God says, I need 100% of you. Satan says, I'll take 5%. 
Because that 5% means that only 95% is, is, is guaranteed for Christ and for spiritual purposes. Note, if you would, the two ways it seems to me that sin overtakes us or that sin catches us. One is by surprise or by impulse, where something happens and we are so surprised and we are not cautious with the way that we react or the way that we act. We've all been there. We've all done that. At least I think we all have. No, I I know we all have. (laughs) Because we are human beings who are sinners, as we recognize in our first point, who recognize that there is two power in sin, in that it separates us from God. And that's beyond the scope of our study together tonight, is to realize that sin is powerful. And it's not something to be laughed at, not something to be scoffed at. But secondly, sin overtakes us by what I would call unguarded habits or poor continual choices. I've always been struck by the book of James chapter 1, and I want to make one just big observation that I've made before and that you may recall me having made. But there in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, I want to just read those three verses and make one very simple but yet not because I'm making it, I believe a profound observation. And that is, let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away. There it is, that concept of being drawn away or overtaken by his own desires, and he is enticed or caught. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And then as a capstone to this verse 16, don't be deceived. And then what does he say? As Paul and Peter and others would say, my beloved brethren. The thing that jumps out to me in that section of verses is the absence of one word, and it's the absence of one subject And it's the absence of one person or being. And that is Satan isn't mentioned. Satan, it seems to me, can put our lives on a pseudo autopilot wherein he says, I don't need to actively be putting temptations in front of them. I can allow their own temptations to get in their way. And we make life easy for Satan by allowing ourselves to be engaged in the very activities that will trip us up because of our poor, unguarded habits and our continual choices. That may be the places that we drive by, the stores that we frequent, the shows that we watch, the people with whom we engage. Satan can say, just keep living life. I'll just sit back and eat popcorn and watch the show. Now, Satan is certainly active, don't get me wrong, but you understand the point that I'm trying to make is that James here, by way of the Holy Spirit, says we are drawn away by our own desires. We trip ourselves up. We are our own worst enemies sometimes as Christians, as human beings in a broader sense of the statement. Let me suggest to you thirdly that let's talk about verbs. Uh, I'm not an expert on the English language, But I do know what a verb is. A verb is something that is the idea of acting and to restore 
is a verb because Christianity, it seems to me, and I think you would agree with me, is all about action, all about service, all about doing things for the Lord and doing things for others. Because when we do things for others, we are doing it for our Lord, though we've got to be cautious about just thinking that that's the only thing that we have to do. Consider, if you would, uh, the word restore for just a moment and go back all the way to the book of Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21. Now, this is the story of Jesus calling some of his earliest followers. He says, going out from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, men in their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat, their father, and followed him. And it's not just the same word that's used in that particular context. It's the same word that is used too in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5. The whole point being is that Jesus says, I want you to follow me. I want you to be whole with me. And then in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, he says, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. The point that I'm trying to make is simply this. Three things are required in order for this to be an active verb, in order for this to be some. And that is effort is required. Secondly, we've got to appreciate that time is required. And if we are going to be good restorers and following the pattern of Jesus and following the pattern of what the Apostle Paul said here, we've got to understand that sacrifice is required. When you think about the idea of restoring someone who is unfaithful or bringing someone to Christ, it will require your effort, it will require your time, and it will require your sacrifice. And that's one of the reasons why we may not want to restore someone. And I say want with big quotation marks because we all want someone restored, but it'd be nice if someone else did the work to get them back where they needed to be. We have the responsibility. And sometimes we may not have the right things to say. We may not have the relationship with the, the person in order to restore him or her. We can all pray. We can all pray. And we can all pray. And sometimes that's the best thing that you can do. And if you talk to grieving parents whose children are not doing what are right, if you talk to grandparents who have grandchildren that are not living correctly, if you talk to someone and their loved one or their friend is not living correctly, and say, I just don't know what to do, sometimes, as was said this morning, all you can do is maybe give them that hug and pray for them, and then pray some more. Because restoring is something that requires our effort. This is number four, a Christian 
responsibility. We cannot farm this out to the world. We cannot come up with some creative spreadsheet to make this work better. It simply is the work of us as Christians to do what the Lord has asked us to do. Note, if you would, the very first word that we stressed in the course of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, and that is the first word here is brethren. This tells us a number of things, but there are two big things that jump out to me. Number one, restoration, restoring, is not the responsibility of those who are not saints. It is a saint-based responsibility. And it's not just elders, nor preachers, nor deacons, nor Bible class teachers, nor men, nor women, nor the old, nor the young. It is the work of all of us as saints to be engaged in this work of restoring our brethren. It has to be the responsibility of the saints, without a doubt. It is our job as Christians. Now, in doing so, Paul highlights that those of us who are spiritually minded are to be about this work. Go back to Galatians chapter 6 and look at the phrase that is used here in Galatians 6 verse 1, where he says, you who are spiritual have the responsibility of restoring. Well, who's spiritual? Well, I hope that we could all say with humility, I'm spiritual. Yeah, I'm spiritual. I'm spiritually minded. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but I'm spiritually minded, which means you are more concerned about the spiritual things than you are the physical things. And I've said this a time or two before. We can, if we're not careful as Christians, get so focused on the physical things in this world that we forget about what matters the most. We get caught up in our physical uh, illnesses, we get caught up in our financial challenges, we get caught up in our family, non-spiritually based dealings, but the thing that matters the most is that which is spiritual. It's possible, it seems to me, from this text, to not be spiritually minded. When he says, you who are spiritually minded, is he talking to all the Christians or is he talking to a particular sect of Christians? I could see that there could be an argument made for the latter, but it seems to me he's saying, number one, I'm talking to all of you as Christians, but number two, all of you should be spiritually minded, wherein you put the spiritual greater than the physical things in this world. And it is evident as to why this is commanded because only the spiritual will be the ones who are concerned with the spiritual needs and that which lacks in those who need to be restored in the first place. And so if you're like me, in thinking about this sermon, both in preparation and in the application and in the presentation, there are a handful of individuals that I'm thinking about. And I'm sure you're thinking about those individuals as well. As well as thinking about the need for ourselves to perhaps be restored, which is the personal application side of what we've presented tonight. Let me suggest to you, fifthly and finally, that when you think about restoration, there needs to be consideration associated with it. When you go and restore an old car or restore an old house, you do so with careful consideration, especially if it's an antique especially if it's got features that you want to preserve. 
You can't say, I'm going to restore this old 1850s house and then just knock it down and say, look, I've restored it after you've rebuilt it. Because that's not really restoration. That's just a construction project. And the same is true with us. We cannot bulldoze one another. We have to be considerate with one another. That's not my opinion. That's the Holy Spirit's commandment. Go back to the second part of verse 1. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. I believe that a study of this nature would be absolutely incomplete without acknowledging that in order to be effective, in order to be right, and in order to be godly in restoring brethren, we've got to have the right spirit, which includes, but is not limited to, and I didn't have all the notes to what David was going to say this morning, but it worked out well, a spirit of impartiality. That when we go out and we talk to those in the world, we are impartial, and we must also be impartial in our brothers and sisters' relationships or the relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters in order to restore them in this spirit of gentleness. And so there's two different words and different versions that you may be reading from. And one is this spirit of gentleness, and the second is a spirit of humility. But let me ask you this question, which again is a second kind of major question in the text tonight, and that is why? Why must we restore in a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of humility? Let me suggest you three reasons as we close. Number one, we are to be gentle and we are to be humble in the way that we approach someone because that's the way Jesus treated humanity. It doesn't mean that Jesus was always peaceful, docile, and unwilling to speak for the truth. After all, he says, brood of vipers. <laughs> After all, he turned over the tables in the temple because he was so upset with their activity. And there are times for us to use that kind of tough, in-your-face language, depending on the person with whom you're trying to interact and trying to help and trying to influence but Jesus was gentle, Jesus was kind, Jesus was a man of humility. Secondly, this matters because that's the way we want to be treated. All of us have likely had someone at some point in our lives come to us and say, I need to talk to you about something that you've done. It may not have been something big or drastic, but maybe you hurt the person's feelings. And they were kind enough to come to you. And when they came to you, if you could, if you could imagine someone coming to you to bring up something that you've done wrong, or at the very least they perceived you've done wrong, how would you rather them approach you? With fists and saying, you're wrong? or with open hands saying, can we talk because you've hurt me? We will all respond better if we are approached in that fashion, and that's the way that we are to approach others in the way that we share the need for them to be restored. And let me suggest to you thirdly, and kind of as an obvious thing to close with, it's because it works. It works in human nature, and it works because it is biblically prescribed. 
This is the biblical pattern of restoration. And we all probably have a handful of individuals. And I know some of you are thinking about particular people that we pray about and we mention and that show up in uh, the emails that you sometimes get from your group leaders about individuals that we're praying about. Why are we praying for those individuals? Because we want them to be restored. And we have to pray about that. We have to sometimes write them, speak to them, call them, text them, interact with them if we happen to run into them, especially if they've separated themselves physically from us. We care about them spiritually more than we do physically because the spiritual matters the most. We want you to be restored and we want each of us to be restored this very evening. And it may be that you say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I I don't need restoration. And it may be that you are solid in your faith and doing well in your obedience to God as of this moment in 2023. But there's a very good chance that at some point in the coming weeks or months where you're going to have some spiritual weaknesses and you may very well make a poor decision as to what you said or what you didn't say or what you thought or what you didn't think or what you did or what you didn't do. And you say, I need restoration. Sometimes that means coming forward physically and saying to a congregation, I have violated God's law. I have done things that have embarrassed me, have embarrassed my family, and potentially embarrassed this congregation. More often is the case is where we ourselves need to pray to God or seek out a handful of brothers and sisters who will be with us there in prayer as well. And so if you're here and you need to make some sort of correction and you need to be restored, and it's not something that the whole congregation needs to know about, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you going to a trusted sister or brother or two or three and saying, will you be with me in prayer and help me as I'm struggling with fill in the blank? And we will be there to assist you. And I, I can speak for... I try not to speak for everybody, but I think I can speak for every saint that is here. They'd be willing to say, I'll pray for you. I'll pray with you because I care about you and because I love you. And I want you to be restored back to your solid place in God's kingdom. There is healing in the wings of our God. And that is the song we're going to sing here in just a few seconds. And if you're not a Christian, we invite you to become a Christian. If you are and are not living correctly and you need spiritual restoration, we'll help you tonight and God will assist you too. For that, we can, we can count on with absolute certainty. If we can help you in any way, let us know while we stand and while we sing.